Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, my guest is Leslie Talbot. She is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Corporate Visions. Leslie combines her passion for writing and storytelling with more than 15 years of experience in content strategy, content marketing, sales communication, enablement, and customer relationship management. As Leslie says, she likes to be challenging conventional wisdom and changing the customer conversation one Oxford comma at a time. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you for joining me. Hi, how are you? Great, great. So I want to jump right in because I think your area that we're going to talk about is quite interesting to me. I think a lot of people can learn from it. And ultimately, I think people are buying experiences and storytelling. So I think that's what we're going to jump into. So before we get there, I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me some of the key aha moments that have gotten you to where you are now. So that's such a great question. I feel like, you know, aha moments are sometimes thrust upon you. And then sometimes they're just things that you arrive at organically. And what I found over the course of my career is a lot of times things happen and the way that you respond to those things and the way that you kind of ride along with those things can organically create those kinds of aha moments. And just to give you an example, so I spent most of my early career in sales and, you know, didn't really have a plan for doing that. It was just something that I kind of got sucked into. And then I took another job to get out of sales and got sucked back into sales again. So it was something that kept pulling me back. But when the tech economy crashed and all the companies were laying people off, it, it kind of thrust upon me the opportunity to sit back and think to myself, do I really want to go back into another sales job? Do I Is that really what I want the trajectory of my career to be? And my honest answer to myself was, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And I was really fortunate because I had a very close friend who had started her own freelance copywriting business. And she knew I was unemployed and kind of a little bit adrift. And she said, hey, Leslie, you're a great writer. I've got too much work to handle. Why don't you just take some of the overflow? You can do it until you figure out what you want to do. And I said, I can actually make money from writing. Like it, it was, again, one of those aha moments that clicked for me that I realized that writing was something that I'd always loved. I was really good at it. I was the sales rep who always rewrote all the marketing content for my organizations. And so I said, sure, why not? I'll try it. And it actually ended up that combining my sales background with my love and passion for writing created a whole new career for me. And the big aha moment out of that was, wow, I can actually do work that I love and support myself with it and meet and work with some really cool people along the way. So my whole career is kind of an aha moment in that way. Interesting. I want to go back to a point you made earlier, and I think this happens to a lot of us. You said aha moments are thrust upon us or they happen organically. And that kind of goes to something I've talked to people about before, and that is 
I think the universe leaves you clues, right? And you either tap into them or you don't. So have you found a way or a way to maybe guide others just to, you know, tap into it if it is thrust upon you or tap into it organically? I spent a lot of time in my early career fixated on what I thought I was supposed to do, on the path that I was supposed to follow. And if you feel like you're forcing yourself into a path because it's the right thing you do, but the whole world is screaming at you that you need to do something different, I think you sometimes need to listen to the screaming. And I think you need to listen. When people tell you you're good at something, you need to believe them. And you need to get over your imposter syndrome and realize that everybody I've ever worked with, every boss that I've ever had, every coworker I've ever had has always said to me, Leslie, you're a great writer. And I'd always kind of dismiss that by saying, yeah, I know, but you know what? I'm really supposed to be doing sales. I'm really supposed to be more business oriented. I'm really, you know, supposed to put all those childish pursuits behind me. And yet the universe was telling me, you need to write, you need to be involved in content, you need to tell stories. And I was finally given an opportunity where I could do that. And I took that instead of doing what I usually do, which is to shut that voice off and continue along the path that I thought I should follow. I was like, well, what the heck? I don't have anything else going on. I might as well try. And that opened up an entire new world for me to the point where I've gotten to a place now in my career where I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that's a really great feeling. So to tap into that feeling, is this the feeling where you went from it was work to doing something you can't believe you get paid to do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I come to work every day and I'm like, I don't believe they give me money for this. <laughs> then it's not work, right? I mean, I think people have always said, follow your passion, things like that. But I think this is another example of actually, if you kind of listen to yourself, observe the opportunities around you, and if you can tap into something that you're naturally good at or enjoy, then you make that shift from work to something you kind of pinch yourself and say, hey, really, I'm getting paid for this. And this is something I enjoy. And I think the people you surround yourself with when you're making those decisions is something that is equally important as well. I was fortunate that Corporate Visions found me and I found Corporate Visions because I didn't really know what to expect. And I've been at Corporate Visions for 15 years and I didn't really know what to expect when I took the job. I can tell you, I have never been in a job for 15 years in the whole rest of my career. And I didn't expect to still be at Corporate Visions 15 years later, but I found a community of like-minded people in my organization. And it was people who are super smart, who are really, really, really good at what they do and who are exceptionally passionate about what they do as well. I mean, when you can like sit in a bar with a coworker for three hours late on a Friday to debate messaging and to debate brain science and to debate our IP and talk about how much we believe in it and how much we love it and how much better it makes everything. It's a signal, right? That you are surrounded with people who think about things the way that you do, who believe in the same things that you believe and who have the same passions. Yeah. I think what's interesting when that happens, you all kind of push each other to the next level, right? Yeah. yeah. Without question. Yeah. So you spent your entire career helping clients tell better stories and to some more effectively. When did you realize the value of storytelling? And so what was the aha moment for that? When I came to Corporate Visions, especially like early in my career at Corporate Visions, there's such an emphasis at Corporate Visions about story and the fact 
that story is the way human beings make sense of the world. It's the way our brains operate. And if your brain doesn't understand something or if there's missing pieces, your brain creates a story to fill in the blanks of that story. So from a business perspective, if you can create that story, fill in the blanks for the customers, lead them to that understanding through story and by making them the hero of their own story, that's how you sell more effectively because that is relatable. It is scientific. It is psychological. It brings everything together in a very smooth and compelling narrative. Let me ask you, a lot of people use the word storytelling, but do you find often that it's misused or misunderstood? Yes, it is. And I think it's because not so much outside of the business world, but in the business world, I think it's getting better. There's a lot of buzz now in the business world about storytelling and business stories, but people still get it wrong. And I think the reason people still get it wrong is because their definition of story is something very narrow. I think everybody gets the concept of a customer success story. Yeah, that's awesome. They know how to tell those stories. What they're not as good about is telling the speculative story that you need to move someone from prospect to buyer. And I think the reason that people struggle with that is because I think still in business, there's the sacrifice of the emotional for the sake of the rational. And when you tell a great story, there's really three components of a great story. There's what we call the perceptive, there's the cognitive, and then there's the affective. The cognitive story is where most business people gravitate to. The facts, the statistics, the proof points, the percentages, like all those things that a few years ago it was trendy to bow all those up and call them insights, right? Like, oh, you know, 90% of IT budget is spent on uh, maintenance and only 10% on innovation. Like they call that an insight. That's not an insight. That's a data point. It's not until you add the other elements to the data point that it becomes a story. And those are the perceptive and the affective elements. So the perceptive element of a story is everything that you can sense things that you can see, things that you can touch, things that you can smell, things that you can taste, things that you can hear, weaving those details into a fact or a data point strengthens the story. And then the big piece that everybody misses is the affective element. And that's the emotion that you bring to the story, the feeling. And what a lot of people don't understand is that human beings do not make decisions based on facts and data. I know we love to think that. And when I was in sales, I was just as guilty of that, where I'd be like, I need an ROI. I need an ROI. If I only have a great ROI, it will be a no-brainer for my customer to buy this thing. But an ROI in and of itself is not going to persuade someone to buy. You actually have to lead them through the story. You need to show the contrast. You need to share the pain, have them experience the pain, show that you understand their pain. And you do that through combining the affective and the perceptive elements of the story. And then and only then do you hit them with the facts. And I think business people still shy away from emotion, but every buying decision is made emotionally. It comes from an emotional place. And the trick is, is to understand what emotions are in play at the moment. What is the decision that this customer is struggling with? Where are they in their journey right now? and build your story around that versus just continuing to throw data at them. If I hear you correctly, I think what you're saying is basically pursue humanization of the story as opposed to just the facts. So 
I really would love it if you could give me an example of tying everything together that you're saying that in a concrete example that really would resonate with our listeners. This was a few years ago, but this was a story that I worked with. It's one of the ones that I worked on that I was really proud of when I was doing, when I was a consultant for Corporate Visions and I was doing messaging work and I was writing their content and their copy for them. One of the pieces of our process is a facilitator and a content consultant will go into a workshop with a customer. We'll have their key decision makers around a table and we build their story. We take them through a framework. We take, take them through a process and we build their story. And this was many years ago when streaming was still new and video streaming was still new. And we were working with a provider of cloud-based streaming services to OTT platforms. And that sounds really boring, but it was actually a really great story because they were kind of in the vanguard of streaming. And the story that we created for them was all around this idea of what businesses were doing, what their prospects were doing to deal with a world of increased competition where there's so much content that content creators couldn't really manage it well enough and they weren't breaking through. They weren't able to resonate with an increasingly fragmented and picky audience. And the story that we came up with for this particular streamer was, look, all of your customers are trying to create more content because they believe that the way that they can compete in this market is by creating more content. In fact, what you don't have is a content problem. What you have is a distribution problem. It's not a supply problem. It's a distribution problem. You got all the content in the world. What you need to be able to do is you need to be able to find a way to get it in front of the people who want to see it, when they want to see it, in the format that they want to see it. If you can fix your distribution problem, you've solved your content problem because you can create the content that you want to create and get it to the people who want to see it without having to leave a lot of content lying on the floor, essentially. So creating that contrast, and that's like building an aha moment into a message, into a story, right? Like what is that perception shift that you need to facilitate with your buyer, facilitate with your prospect to get them to see, oh my gosh, I have been thinking about this the entirely wrong way. You're right. So if you can get your buyer to that, if you can create a story that is going to facilitate that perception shift, who else are they going to want to work with? Because you've brought the insight, you've brought the story, and most importantly, you've made them the hero of that story. So you brought up an interesting uh, concept, insights. How do you pursue insights to get this level of understanding so you can humanize? So you have to understand the buyer. You have to understand what's happening in the buyer's world. And I'm actually not talking necessarily about understand your persona. You know, I mean, I know that a lot of organizations create personas, which I kind of think of more as characters than actual personas. You know, you're like, this is Joe, he's an IT director and he, you know, worries about XYZ. And he lives in a split level ranch with his wife and two kids and his dog named Patches. Like there's a lot of that going on. People do that in an effort to try to personalize the buyer. But what we found is that People don't make decisions based on their role. They make decisions based on their pain and they make decisions based on the overall organizational goal. So what we look at in the work that we do is we look at what we call the buyer deciding journey. So not so much a buying journey, but the deciding journey, which is what is this buyer's status quo at the moment that you are engaging with them? Are they a prospect or are they an existing customer? Guess what? You tell two different stories to prospects and existing customers. 
But more importantly, what is the exact decision that they're struggling with? You know, a lot of times organizations will have a prospective buyer reach out to them and they immediately think that, okay, this is a qualified buyer. They obviously, you know, are interested in our solution. So I'm going to tell them all about our solution and tell them all the cool things about our solution. When in fact, the buyer has not made a decision that they need to do anything different at all. They're looking for information. So the first thing as a seller, as a marketer, you have to understand is that the very first conversation that you need to have with a prospect is why should they change at all? Because they are looking for reasons to not change. Human beings are very grounded in their status quo. If all other things were equal, they would continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. So you got to make the case for change. And one of the ways that you make the case for change is through facilitating those aha moments in the customer conversation. Hmm. Once they decide that they need to change, then you can talk about your stuff. But that's not the only decision that they make. There's the why change, the why you. Why should they invest in your solution? And why should they invest their own corporate political capital in pushing your solution? Why should they pay what you're asking for? And why should they do it now? Why can't they do it next year? So all of these decisions are part of what we call the customer deciding journey. And as a seller or as a marketer, you need to understand where that individual is on that path and message to the decision, not to the persona. Interesting. So you've wrote a book previously called Singular Existence. I did. Which was a collection of humorous essays about being single and the inability of for society to recognize the value of individuals as anything other than the marital status. Tell me more about this and what sparked you to write this book. That was also an aha moment. And I will tell you exactly what that aha moment was. And I was sitting at my kitchen table reading the Boston Globe. And I came across this article that someone had written about how single people were taking up too much space on the planet and we should co-house them. <laughs> so that, it made me really mad because I was a single person, owned my own home. You know, I wasn't like a huge home or anything like that, but it was my home. And I, I started to imagine what it would be like if you took all the single people in the world and rounded them up and put them in dorms. And it was a horrible vision. And so I sat down and I wrote an angry letter to the Boston Globe for publishing this. I wanted to protest every point in this article. And it ended up becoming an essay. And so I never sent the letter to the Globe, but I actually, I wrote this essay. I sent it around to a few friends of mine. And it was funny because, you know, when I write, I kind of get this little snarky tone in my voice. And people are like, this is really funny. And I realized that I actually had a few other things to say on the topic as well. So I wrote another essay and then I wrote another one and then I wrote another one. And I was like, soon I had this whole like pile of essays. And my friend Jesse said to me, you should start a blog. And so I said, what's a blog? <laughs> First of all, it was a long time ago, but I found out what a blog was and I founded a blog and I started a blog and I just started throwing my essays up on the blog and I got a following and pretty soon I had a big collection. And then all the people who were reading my blog were saying, you should really get these published. So I said, okay. And I got an agent and she was able to sell it to a publisher. And that was how my book came to be. Huh. But it was all because I got mad. <laughs> you know, it's often the best thing. You know, sometimes a little bit of anger yeah. really motivates you and sparks a thinking in a direction, which is interesting. So I'm curious, what did you learn from all these essays? Life is a lot more nuanced than an essay. I mean, that's that's one thing that I learned accidentally through this. And I 
went out and I promoted the book and I was on TV and I did, you know, radio interviews and things like that. And, and I think one of the things that surprised me was that sometimes people would hire me to write guest columns and they would expect me to be this kind of angry, you know, militant kind of person. And there's a lot more nuance in life than that. So one of the things that I tried to bring to all of my interviews and all of my, you know, guest essays and promotions and things was what's the nuance in this? Like, why do people think the way that they think and why are they wrong? But not to do it in necessarily like a confrontational way, but to try to bring people together a little bit. Mm -hmm. You often talk about challenging conventional wisdom. How would you describe the conventional wisdom of current marketers? The current wisdom of conventional marketers is not necessarily wrong, but I think it's limited. And I think especially the increase in automation, the rise in digital marketing, most marketers get into marketing because we don't like math and science. And all of a sudden, math and science is being flung upon us. And I think a lot of marketers feel imprisoned by that. I think a lot of marketers are slaves to the numbers. How many SALs? How many MQLs? You know, how many touches? How many clicks? How many opens? And those are all important statistics, but I, I look at those as lagging indicators, right? And they're lagging indicators of how good your story is. And I do think that sometimes the story and the nuance gets lost in the cloud of, well, you got to write this blog page for SEO. And, you know, if you've ever had an SEO agency write blog copy or article copy for you, you know how bad that writing can be. And I think a lot of marketers kind of feel imprisoned by that. So a lot of the work that I do with my team is we look at the numbers, we pay attention to the numbers, we're, you know, live and die by the numbers, but there's a lot of flexibility within that to still do innovative things and to still tell great stories. You just have to be mindful of the metrics and how you're being measured. So when you're telling people to be more storytelling, to humanize more, what are three common challenges or hurdles you often encounter and how do you address them? So, you know, hurdle number one is objections. Oh, our customers will never listen to that. We need more numbers. We need more data. The second one is our product is different and our product is really special. And we look for that pivot point in our stories with that kind of shift in perception. Like a lot of times people want that shift in perception to lead to buy our thing. And instead of, you know, you think you have this problem, but you really have this problem, it becomes you're buying this thing, you really need to buy this thing. And it's not the same thing. People don't buy products, they buy solutions, they buy solutions to problems. So that's thing number two. Thing number three is who is the hero of the story? And if I were to ask any marketer, I would say, who's the hero of your story? They would say, oh, it's the customer. So everybody recognizes that the customer is the hero of the story, yet they write and tell stories that make their product, their solution, their organization, the hero of the customer's story. When in fact, your solution is the mentor and the customer is the one who is on this hero's journey. So the big thing that when I coach marketers, when I work with marketers, when I teach our marketing skills courses, the number one course correction I always need to facilitate with those conversations is you're making the story about you. It needs to be about the customer. So if I hear you correctly, it seems like often the struggle is between being rational because most people believe we have a rational customer who researches, finds facts and figures on the internet, 
And you're saying you don't disagree with that. However, what's really going to drive the decision is tapping into more of the emotional factors. Is that correct? People make decisions based on emotion. They rationalize them with facts and data. So I'm not saying you don't need facts and data. I'm saying that you got to grab them emotionally first. And in fact, we did a study a few years ago. And one of the things that we wanted to study was senior executive decision-making. What drives them? Are they driven by emotion or are they driven by logic? And going into this study, everybody's, you know, kind of assumption was, yeah, you know, CEOs, CIOs, CFOs, they're going to make decisions based on the numbers. They're not going to let emotion get in the way of that. Just curiosity of this study, what was the gender split on that? Because because I would think one would argue that it might have been more men and men are less emotional, but I don't think it matters, does it? That's the assumption, right? That's one of the assumptions that men are less emotional. But in fact, everybody has a brain. Yes. And, you know, brain psychology doesn't change based on your sex or your gender or what your job is. And so going into this study, we kind of assumed, well, you know, senior executives, they're going to set emotion aside and they're going to make the rational decisions for the good of the company. And what we found was that the concept of loss aversion, which we consider an emotion, it's an emotional response to a situation, loss aversion won the day. In every single test that we did, we found that executives made their decisions based on the idea of avoiding a loss versus increasing a gain. And we actually wrote about the study in the expansion sale, which is the corporate business book, but it's a little sidebar where we talked about this study and we talked about why that was and why that is, is because the brain doesn't change. Brain psychology is timeless. And that makes it great for marketers in many ways, because if you understand how the brain is working, you can create those stories, you can create those pitches, you can create those assets that speak to the emotional side of the brain. And that's not to say people hear emotion and they're like, oh, emotion, it means weeping and sobbing and manipulative language and things like that. That's not it at all. You know, emotions are very visceral, fundamental things like loss aversion, like fear of change, like preference stability. You know, this idea that once you make a decision, you have to stick with that decision because it was a really hard decision to make and you don't want to revisit it. So all of those things are part of the emotional component of any business decision and understanding what those are and how to address them, I believe should be a huge part of what marketers do. I think in this example, if I'm hearing correctly, what really it was is what was the motivator behind what they pursued. And in this case, it wasn't necessarily that which is going to give you the most reward is which is going to put me in a position where I didn't make the wrong decision. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, what's going to cause the least amount of pain, right? Right. And, you know, (laughs) loss aversion, what we call anticipated regret and blame, right? Nobody wants to be the guy who made that decision that took the company down the wrong path. Nobody wants that. And so people will do all kinds of extraordinary things to avoid having to make that decision. And that's a huge component of people's natural status quo bias. All other things being equal, people would not change because the perception is that status quo is safe. The perception is that status quo, as long as you don't do anything different, what you're doing today hasn't killed you yet. So it's not going to kill you if you keep doing it. And part of the job of a seller and a marketer is to say, well, yeah, actually, if you keep doing this, it is going to kill you. And here's why. That's interesting because often management is the one saying, think out of the box, you know, do something different. Yeah. But so it's a bit of a quandary, but I know what you mean. And I think 
ultimately you have to get to the heart of what is motivating people. And I agree with you completely. I think, you know, we're driven by 95% of our decisions are driven by our subconscious, which involves a lot of emotion. We process a lot. It's not just facts and figures. Right. Can you give me an example of a project or a product you worked on where they were going the non-emotional route? However, you convinced them to go the emotional route and what it did to the trajectory of that project or product. I'll go back to the example that I used before because that was very much, they were very much down that same path. We had the technical people on one side of the table, we had the salespeople and the marketing people on the other side of the table. And the technical people were like, no, they care about speeds and feeds and bits and bytes and streaming, you know, technology and things like that. And one of the deliverables that comes out of our messaging engagement is a whiteboard visual, essentially. And our facilitators are wonderful at doing this, by the way, but they will take everything that they hear in this facilitated workshop and they will create a whiteboard visual based on everything that they've heard. And we had gone through this really contentious meeting and the salespeople and a lot of times, you know, what we do at Corporate Visions is mediate fights. And that's a really good thing. And one of the reasons why it's good, because people actually really care about the stories that they tell. I mean, I've seen people cry in a good way in these meetings because they believe so passionately in their story. And that's awesome that people care that much. But anyway, so we're in this meeting and everybody was fighting and our facilitator, brilliant guy by the name of Scott Weinhold, just took it in and took it in and took it in. And then he created the whiteboard. And he told the story as he drew the whiteboard. And there's a point in all of our whiteboards where we do that perception shift, where we show the contrast between current state and future state. And this was a particularly dramatic visual where we basically took a funnel and turned it upside down. And there's a thousand other things that happened in that story as well. But at that moment when he drew that second visual, there was a gasp from our biggest detractor on the other side of the table. And he's like, oh, and at that moment, our sponsor in the meeting, like raised his hands and like raised his fists and pumped them in the air and said, yes, it was like, honestly, one of the best moments of my life. And I took a picture of him doing it because it was just so powerful. But that was when you get the room on your side. And if you can get your most vigorous technical detractor on your side in a moment like that, you know, you've got the right story. Not only that, they often become your super fan, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like, and, you know, again, status quo bias, if you can get people over that hunt and get that perception shift, they become your biggest advocates in the room. So it sounds like a lot of your job is spent shifting mindsets. Yeah. So what tips or tricks have you learned? Maybe you can give us three that, you know, hey, these things are really effective in helping shift a mindset. So I like to think of them as the three C's of great content, but they're basically the three C's of every great sales conversation or, or marketing story, which is context, contrast, and concrete words and images. Context meaning you got to tell your story from the buyer's point of view. You need to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what problems they're struggling with, what is their status quo right now. Contrast is showing them a contrast between their current state and their desired state, their future state. What are they going to be able to do differently by working with you? And concrete is how do you make that concrete? So you can't talk about big fluffy words like value because how do you make value concrete? 
You do that through examples. You do that through those perceptive elements of storytelling that I was talking about before. So those three things, if you don't have all three of those things in your message or in your story, it's not going to be effective at shifting mindsets because you've got to make it painful for them. You've got to make their current state painful for them. And then you've got to show them concretely what they're going to be able to do differently to get out of that pain. And I'm not talking about fear, uncertainty, and doubt or manipulating people or anything like that. It's about having a rational conversation with your buyer as if you're a consultant, as if you're helping them. One of the things that you'll see at Corporate Visions at our website is that we give away all of our IP. We don't charge for IP. We will do a study. We will release those results to the general public because it facilitates a conversation and helps people understand where we're coming from. So sharing those insights and being open and transparent about what those insights are and why they're so valuable makes people want to work with us. Is there a brand that you can think of that really does this really well right now that many of us might even recognize? So a lot of people talk about Apple as being the brand that does it really well. And I agree that Apple is really good at engaging consumers. But if you look at a lot of Apple's content and copy, like a lot of the copies about themselves and they've created almost like a club kind of mentality that it's about Apple and people want to join that. That's effective for them. And a lot of organizations I work with try to mirror that. And I feel like that's something Apple can get away with. I don't think it's something that most other organizations can get away with because they're not as iconic. So for, you know, your average day-to-day business kind of person, you want your organization to be accessible and transparent, but you also need to be an authority on something. So I think if you look at any business that is an authority on XYZ topic, that's what people will gravitate toward because they want those answers. They want that expertise. People come to us, global B2B organizations come to corporate visions because they know that if they want to create messages and have sales conversations that have a true scientific underpinning, they're only going to get that from us. So every organization that's looking to position themselves has to answer really honestly, what can they do with you differently that they can't do with any other organization, with any of their competitors? And that's got to be the foundation of your story. So I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. In order to establish authority, it does not require facts and figures to establish authority. Or can emotion actually help you establish authority even better? I think facts and figures are proof points. So you absolutely need those, but what are you proving? So you have to understand what it is that you're trying to prove and use the facts and figures that support that story. But the front end of that is what's different about you? Why are you better? And you you want people to know that you're better and you show them that you're better by showing them how your stuff works in their world. And that's the real key, again, is that They're the hero of their own story. You're a supporting player. So you have to show how you support their goals and their ambitions and their objectives. And then you can prove how you've done it in other places with those facts and figures. But they're not going to care about those facts and figures until they see the relevance to themselves. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between a good story and a great story? A good story is one that kind of ticks all the boxes. So you establish the right setting, you establish the right problem, you show how your world will be different, and it's got a little bit of that contrast in there. And that's great. A great story has the perception shift. 
and it's a real perception shift. It's, I never even thought of this problem that way. Holy cow, this changes everything. That is the outcome of a great story. A good story, people will read and be like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. But a great story is like, wow. So that's the difference between the two, I think. So being true to the podcast, it sounds like you're saying a great story is when you create an aha moment versus just a story. Every great story has a great <laughs> aha moment. That's why I love the title of your podcast so much because it resonated so much with me. That is what you're looking for in every customer story that you tell or in every great piece of literature. So, yeah. So what do you see moving forward in the future of storytelling? What do you see happening or changing? My hope is that people hear this podcast or they engage with storytelling and they understand that telling a great story in business is about more than just throwing a bunch of stats at somebody. If you want more people to engage with your content, you've got to create content that speaks to them. And, and you know, one of the things that I do with my team is if I get a great prospecting email from someone or if I see a great piece of advertising, or if I see a great article, I share that with them. And I'm like, this is the kind of thing that we want to try to emulate. This is what we want to try to do. I share the bad ones as well. And we all have a good laugh over it. But you know, showing what's good is the best way to get more people to do what's good. Mm -hmm. Is there an area of storytelling you'd like to delve into more and why? I think what I'd like to see happen and on my own team as well as kind of on marketing teams in general is I would just like to see better writing. I have a team of writers, they're wonderful, they're great and they do great work, but broadly across the whole thing, the writing is honestly so bad. And I don't think it's because people are bad writers. I think it's because people are afraid. I think people stick to what's safe and in marketing what's safe is that you know straightforward business tone? It's that you know just the facts. It's not letting emotion or any hyperbole kind of creep into your narrative because marketers have been told that's bad. Customers don't care, and that's heartbreaking to me. Like the idea that people would think that customers don't care about a great story, or customers don't engage with a great narrative, is just wrong. And the other thing that we hear all the time is. Oh, people only have the attention span of a goldfish. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard that metaphor, the goldfish metaphor. It's completely wrong. And anybody who has ever binge watched a TV show knows that that is completely wrong as well. People can focus on stuff day in and day out if it's stuff that they really want to focus on. And the way to do that in a business conversation is to tell a story and to tell a story that is rich in detail, that is rich in emotion, that has those facts and figures on the back end, but that is engaging and shows contrast and shows a journey and shows change. That's what people are interested in. And that's what keeps them going. That's what keeps them engaged. So I would love to see marketers be less timid, more straightforward, and obviously always use Oxford commas because that's just the thing for me. But I think also if what you're saying, sometimes people could have a tendency to be too verbose. So I think the challenge is to be concise, to cut words, but not the actual content and emotions that need to be retained. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a difference between being concise and being perfunctory, right? Right. Concise means that you're using the best word at the best time for the best purpose. And it means cutting out 
extraneous fat from your writing. And just to give you an example, one of the things that drives me crazy is the phrase in order to, right? In order to do this, you have to do why. You don't need the in order. You just need the two. So you can go through and you can cut little bits of fat out of your writing by just removing extraneous words that don't mean anything. And that you're able to hone your story back to the heart of it. And there's this great book called Edit Yourself. And I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but tiny, skinny little volume, but great tips for just cutting fat out of your writing, unnecessary words. And just choosing the right words and using the precisely right word at the right time is the number one thing that a writer can do right now to make their content tighter. And when you cut all of that extra stuff out, you're left with the emotion. And that's what elevates the piece of content. It drives me crazy that like a lot of times writers are compensated by the word because that's the exact opposite of what great writing really is. Great writing is being concise, but being impactful and being effective. And what's interesting is even if someone can't write concisely, they absorb concise content much more readily and retain it even longer. Yep. So if you could have lunch with anybody in the world of storytelling, who would it be and why? Stephen King. I would have lunch with Stephen King. You know, he gets stereotyped sometimes. Like he gets a bad rap. Oh, he's a horror writer. Oh, you know, his books are all scary and gross. My favorite Stephen King books are actually his non-horror books. My favorite Stephen King books are things like, he just wrote a recent one called Billy Summers, which is about a hitman who's trying to get out of life or something like that. It's not a horror book. His characterizations and his narrative is so readable that it just keeps you going. I always listen to a Stephen King audiobook if I'm on a long car ride because the narrative is so smooth and so engaging and so flowing. And a lot of people might think he's too verbose and maybe he is, but man, does he have a voice and does he have the ability to create characters that people care about? And I could just listen to one of his stories all day long. Sounds great. Well, Leslie, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed about storytelling, and I hope we all get to see and hear better storytelling as we move forward in our marketing world. That's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I thank you very much for joining me on Getting to AHA today. My pleasure. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.